right, welcome to everyone joining us from live trading. I'm your host, producer AB. We've got our Road to Wealth seminar today, and we're going to be talking to various leaders in the industry uh, about you know what to expect from the market this year, how to protect your money. How, maybe some we'll get into some portfolio construction later in the day. Um, but again, thank you to everyone tuning in. Uh, we've got our first guest today hanging out backstage, my man Charles Lieberman, the, the Chief Investment Officer at, Advi- at Advisors Capital Management. Uh, super excited to bring Charles on and hear his thoughts on the market right now. So without further ado, Charles, how are you doing on this beautiful Thursday? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, all right, glad to hear it. So Chuck, I guess let's start with uh, you know, what's really driving the markets right now. And that's, uh, in my opinion, at least federal interest rates. A lot of people now worried after Waller's comments the other day that that interest rates may stay higher for longer. Uh, what's your view on this? Well, I think Waller's got it right. I think the market was just way overboard. Um, the Fed is trying to bring inflation down and the market is assuming the Fed is going to be successful. Um, inflation has come down a lot, but we're still pretty far away from their 2% target. So they've still got a fair ways to go. And the market is assuming they're going to get there. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the economy is holding up very well. The fears of a recession have dissipated. Uh, and in my judgment, we're never very good. Uh, the prospects of a recession, uh, the economy is holding up very well. And as that gets embedded in the market, we're seeing the, the bond market retreat. Got it. Well, I know we have some slides that you provided as well. Um, but so for, for do you think right now, uh, I guess bonds, you know, still offering, uh, you, you know, a decent yield, depending on what you go with? Do you think that's a, a sound investment out there for some retail investors? It's a place to hide to uh, protect capital, but I don't think of it as a great investment. Uh, you know, take the uh, uh, the thirty year or the t- or the ten year. Uh, when you adjust for taxes and inflation, you get almost a negligible rate of return. So bonds are really a, a place to protect capital. They're, they're not a great investment. So, Chuck, let's talk about inflation for a second here. I mean, we've seen inflation now come down from, you know, when it hit 9% in 2022, when it was at 40-year highs. Uh, certainly the Fed has made progress, but I think right now still probably a little higher than what they would like above, of course, that 2% target. Uh, do you think it's it's going to just be high rates until we get to that 2% target? Do you think they could eventually say, hey, you know what? We're fine with 2.5%. That's fine. You know, I mean, uh, what, what do you think there? I don't think they're going to be uh, fine with 2.5%. Um, you know, they've said they need to get to 2%. So for them to backtrack on that now really undoes the uh, the goodwill, the, the confidence that the people, that the market has in the Fed. Uh, if they say they're okay with two and a half today, uh, who's to say they won't won't say they'll be fine with three percent tomorrow? So the Fed's got to maintain its credibility, and that means getting close to two percent. And the easy part has been done because that nine percent inflation rate that you mentioned um, that was a large amount of spike because of a disruption to supply chains and a whole bunch of other things that were artificial and really pushed up prices. Uh, All of that's now out of the system. In fact, it's reversed. So we saw car prices run up and now they're coming back down. 
but they're still higher than they were where they were prior to COVID. Um, and we're not seeing labor costs moderate enough. And that's the ultimate driver of the rate of inflation. Inflation is essentially increases in compensation to workers minus the rate of productivity. And productivity bounces around quite a bit, but the underlying trend's about 1%. So if wages are running 4 or 5% at an annual rate, we're not getting to 2% inflation. Uh, yeah, and I mean, right now with uh, the, C I mean, do you expect the CPI to continue to move lower? Do you think we can see that happen without any sort of meaningful or significant pain in the labor market? I think we have to see some significant pain in the labor market. And that's why I don't think this the CPI is going to continue to come down. Uh, recently, it has held up. Uh, it was It's basically been a bit of a, a, a flat type of CPI. Uh, and we're seeing some parts of the economy bounce back like housing. So I don't think we're there yet. And I don't think the Fed will lower rates in March. I think they'll have to let more data come in in the hope that inflation comes down. Got it. And then, um, I mean, as far as the market right now, it seems like the market has at least started to price in, uh, you know, the fact that the Fed might not be cutting rates as soon as March. I mean, after Waller's comments kind of shaking out, do you think uh, we're now trading, you know, that that's fair? Or do you think that market will continue to move lower in anticipation of these rates staying higher? Well, if you recall, uh, the Fed said that they were going to rate they were going to cut rates three times in 2024, and the market was priced for six to seven. That's the part where the market was just way out over its skis. Waller's statement could be applied to the Fed saying they're going to cut by three times. Maybe they won't even cut by three times. So the market is really way out ahead of the Fed. And it's really premature for the market to think that. And that's why the bond market is eroding. Uh, we're going to see probably more erosion over time. I don't think it'll be a big sell-off uh, because I see the economy, um, the hope of inflation coming down, staying intact, uh, at least for a while. And so I think that uh, the Fed is going to be patient. The market's going to have to adapt. Got it. And yeah, and we do have the, you know, these slides that you provided here this morning. We got uh, slightly stronger than expected lab uh, labor data with the uh, the fact that initial jobless claims came in lower than expected. Um, I mean, do you do you anticipate, you know, the unemployment number ticking higher if we are going to see the inflation? I mean, do you think at some point people start then selling stocks because they're worried about a recession instead? No, I see stocks holding up. Uh, you know, stocks have a push-pull to them. Higher rates are a headwind for the stock market, no doubt about that. But at the same time, the market's worried about a recession, as you just suggested. If the economy holds up, and that means corporate profits going to do well. So I think that's going to be the support for the stock market. I, I fully expect it to bounce around quite a bit, both to the upside and the downside. People uh, overreact to every piece of news that comes down the pike. Uh, and so good news sometimes helps the stock market because it means no recession. But at the same time, it also means that rates don't come down. So we'll see a lot of bouncing around. But we also got housing starts today. And, you know, that I, I think is one of the more interesting charts. Take a look at number 17. OK. Uh, what's interesting here is that mortgage rates came shot up a lot. And that really crushed housing in 2022. But rates, mortgage rates went up 
beyond that and notice that the housing market has flattened out. And that's because there's a major shortage of housing in the U.S. And so with mortgage rates now coming down over the last month or two, uh, we're seeing a pop, a rebound in housing activity. And I think housing is going to be very strong, another tailwind for the economy. So do you think, you know, retail investors like our audience out there will be able to play some of these housing names? I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier, I guess that uh, or actually with my previous guest that the XBI biotech underperformed the market last year and so did home builders. Could you see home builders having a bounce back year? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, home builders had a really good uh uh, the home builder stocks did very well last year. They they gave some ground towards the end of the year and then rebounded. Mm -hmm. I think they're cheap as anything. And I think they're going to have a lot of tailwind going forward for the next few years. Even if, if we have higher interest rates, people need to live somewhere. And there's a real shortage of housing in the U.S. So uh, people will have no choice but to either buy or to rent. And if they rent, that means somebody else has got to build a rental unit. So either way, housing does well. And I think that's very good for not only home builders, but the suppliers to the industry. They should all do well. And we've seen them do uh, reasonably well recently, but I think there's a lot more ahead given how cheap they are. Uh, you're seeing, I've seen a lot of articles now and headlines about credit card debt and things like that. Um, and, and I know, you know, looking at like household debt compared to the GDP, do you think this could be a problem for the economy going forward? Well, it's amusing because uh, when people look at, uh, at household debt, uh, they look at the absolute dollars. So take a look at uh, chart number 12. One before 12. this one. Yeah, yep. that's what gets reported. Oh, my God, this is scary. Look at credit card debt. It's now over a trillion dollars. But the next chart, the very one that you were just looking at, yep, shows you debt relative to GDP. And what this shows is, you know, we're a growing economy. Most things grow over time. But if you look at household debt relative to GDP or relative to household income or any other uh, appropriate benchmark, you see that households are actually in very good financial shape. Households are doing fine. Job growth is strong. And because job growth is strong, that means income growth is strong, which gives consumers the ability to go out and spend. So, again, I don't see a recession in 24. I just I can't put together a scenario for a recession. Uh, there's always the possibility of a shock coming from somewhere. But in terms of fundamentals, the fundamentals are very sound. Yeah. And that's what I think is so funny about some of these headlines that seem to be pretty doom and gloom. They're like credit card debt hits new all time high. And like you yeah. said, well, when the economy grows and expands over time, what's going to happen is that's going to happen naturally and doesn't even necessarily mean it's a bad thing. So, um, Chuck, any other industries? I mean, you mentioned that you think home builders will have a strong 2024. Are there any other sectors that you're watching specifically that you can that you're looking for for outperformance? Yeah, so I think energy is a good area for outperformance, uh, and I suspect the banks are as well. In the case of energy, the U.S. has hit an all-time high in oil production, uh, over 13 million barrels at an annual rate. Uh, the price bounces around a fair amount, uh, and that has a big impact on the P&Ls of the oil producers. So when prices go up, they make more money. When prices go down, they make less. But the pipeline companies need to transport all of that oil. And we're at record levels of production, both for oil and gas. And we're exporting record levels uh, of both as well. 
So the companies that are in the business of moving the stuff around or processing it, they're all going to do very well. So we like them. And, they, and many of them pay very high distribution. So you, you generate a lot of income with those holdings. Uh, another area I like are the banks. The banks got crushed after Silicon Valley Bank failed, understandably. Uh, and they're all very, very cheap. But they're all uh, making a lot of money. Uh, they are being harassed by, uh, by regulators. Uh, but at some point, they're going to be buying back a lot of stock and raising their dividends. Uh, I think all of them is, is really attractive long term. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, kind of in the earnings season right now, you had most of the big banks report uh, last week. And I mean, even JP Morgan, who reported good earnings, you saw that stock end up moving lower. So could be a buying opportunity, like you said, in the banks long term, especially if you're someone that likes to have those dividends rolling in. Um, and, uh, I, I guess, do you have any individual, uh, names? Are you, are you able to talk about those Chuck? Sure. So the ones we like all of the big ones, meaning, uh, okay. JP Morgan city, Wells Fargo, uh, bank of America, uh, of all of them, uh, JP Morgan is the most expensive by far, but it, you could argue deservedly. So it's just an extremely well-run institution, extremely profitable, high return on equity. Uh, so we like all of them. Some of the super regionals are also very attractive. Uh, Fifth Third Bank, uh, Regions Financial, uh, Comerica. These are all banks that were taken out and shot in, in the aftermath of Silicon Valley. And so I think they're all cheap. Uh, again, a little patience. These companies are making plenty of money uh, and they'll all be buying back stock. They're all uh, some of the embedded losses they had in their bond portfolios have reversed in the fourth quarter. You're going to see that with their fourth quarter reports. Uh, so we think of them as all attractive long-term holdings and they're very cheap. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, those regional banks got absolutely clobbered and still haven't made their way back. The KRE uh, regional banking ETF still trading lower. And some of those names that you mentioned, Regions and Comerica are reporting tomorrow morning. So uh, could be some short-term volatility just for anyone out there if they're if you're mm -hmm. if you're looking at those stocks. Um, you also mentioned energy, uh, Chuck. I mean, the last few weeks, oil prices have been volatile. You have this, you know, tension obviously in the Middle East and some other things going on. Um, but overall, oil prices are have been trading lower. Do you think that we'll we'll see that change soon? Um, not really. Um, there's a lot of supply. Uh, okay. OPEC. OPEC is struggling because uh, they would like to sell more at higher prices, but uh, there's enough coming on in the U.S. and elsewhere that we're eating away at their market share. Uh, they've created a pricing umbrella under which everyone else can increase production and take advantage of the opportunity. So U.S. production, as I mentioned, is at an all-time record high, um, and that means that OPEC is, is being squeezed. They've, they've almost been forced to reduce production in order to avoid prices coming down. So at some point they may give up on that proposition and they may be forced to try to push others out of the market by cutting their price. They've done that before, uh, but the big beneficiaries are all the pipelines uh, and all the users of energy. So chemical companies, uh, uh, anyone who's, who uses a lot of energy as an input is ultimately gonna be better off. Yeah, and you like those companies that are transporting the the uh, oil and, and commodities right now. So, um, all right, Charles, well, we're running up on time here. Is there anything you want to leave us with that we didn't get to touch on today? Well, the, the big driver, of course, in the short run is the Fed. And as long as the Fed uh, uh, 
uh, thinks that it's going to cut rates at some point. The market is going to hold on to that belief uh, steadfastly. Uh, but uh, ultimately, the Fed is going to have to follow the data. And if the economy is solid, uh, there'll be fewer rate cuts than the market expects, and the market's going to have to adapt. Yep. So, uh, yeah, right now the market, I think, is is kind of pricing in like five or six cuts, and it was originally seven, as you pointed out. So, uh, you know, definitely the market is adapting to updated Fed outlook. We'll see if the labor market and the economy remains hot and the Fed is able to end up keeping those rates higher. I mean, uh, definitely, you know, just those Waller comments last week, you can tell the impact that it had on the markets. Great. Chuck, thanks again for joining us on our Road to Wealth webinar today. Hope we get to chat again soon. It's been an awesome discussion. Thank you. All right, guys, that was Chuck Lieberman, of course. Uh, we're going to be moving on. We've got my man Abdul, a.k.a. Mini Trades, hanging out backstage. Uh, so without further ado, let's go ahead and bring on Mini Trades, the founder of Market Masters. Abdul, how do you how you doing? You want me to call you Mini Trades or Abdul? Let me know. Um, Mini Trades is fine. Abdul, whatever, whatever you whatever you find. I think All Mini right, Trades works out good. Let's go Mini Trades. That's how more people right. know you by. So we'll go by that. So before we get started, uh, why don't you just tell me a little bit about Market Masters? Yeah, so Market Masters, uh, it's a trading team. It's a community in which uh, we focus on education. And, um, you know, really, we have a thousand hours worth of uh, education content. Uh, we live trade every single morning. Uh, and since my focus is primarily small caps, we make sure that the team gets information about the small caps. Um, so we have scanners live built in within the Discord that are coded. We have um, a scanner list every single morning that updates almost every two minutes. Um, and yeah, that we pretty much focus on, you know, helping people manage their risk rather than just gambling their money away. How can our, uh, you know, tell us how our audience can use trading to increase their personal wealth, even if, uh, you know, or maybe just supplement their income, even if they already have uh, a full-time job. So actually having a full-time job is probably even better uh, for trading rather than just only relying on trading as a source of income initially when starting. Um, and the reason for that being is because when you have a job, right, you have a sustainable income, you have more financial security, so you have less emotions in trading. But when you have only trading and you're worrying about paying your bills through a trade, when I enter a trade, I'm going to be wanting to, you know, I have to make this much money so I can pay this bill, right? You have too much emotions in that trade. You're not going to be trading the setup, but you're going to be trading the money. So that takes away the eyes really from the system uh, and really focusing on, uh, you know, following your plan in the trade. And, you know, you're just going to be trying to get pennies out of the market rather than actually following your plan. So um, you can be swing trading. You can be day trading um, and actually day trading uh, for people on uh, PST. The market opens at 630, I believe. So you have about two to three hours to even trade before, before, you know, actually nine to five start. So you have that time. Um, and for where I live, where it's central time, pre-market trading has so much potential for small caps, right? Large caps, right. not many, not much going on. Uh, but for small caps, like today, we had a 300% runner, um, yesterday, 300% runner. So it's a, it's a great opportunity. For some of our newer traders in our audience, potentially, I mean, what what are some basic strategies and concepts that are important to learn on day one? Uh, how did you start? Uh, so I started with basic support and resistance, right? So support and resistance, obviously, almost every trader knows what that is. And if you don't, then, you know, that's that's the basic that you need to know. 
um, support and resistance, right? So when I started diving in, I made sure that I was watching YouTube videos and kind of getting a gist. And when I started with support and resistance, it worked out well. But the issue with that was I was getting stopped out a little bit too much. Actually, a lot. I was getting stopped out because I was only dependent on one support line and one resistance line. And although, you know, we know that trading is not that black and white, there's a lot of gray in the middle um, and it's a beauty behind it. Right. So actually trading with supply and demand is what has helped me and what I believe is the holy grail to trading, at least for myself. Um, and so for supply and demand, it helps me define a risk. And it's not just one line, but it's an area or a zone that I'm watching. Uh, along with volume to make sure that the trade is setting up rather than just, you know, one line, because if you have one line, then the, the risk is just, okay, as soon as it goes behind this line, I'm going to stop out. It's going to hit your stop loss. They're going to hit your stop loss, grab your liquidity and, and the trade is going to go without you. And then you're going to end up chasing it. And it's just that, just that loophole. So supply and demand has helped me with that, uh, avoiding that. Yeah, that's that's really good information there. And definitely something that newer traders can uh, take away. So for a lot, a lot of our audience, uh, they have maybe different portfolios for their trading portfolio and then their long-term holdings. Uh, what are the, some of the strategies you like for like long-term wealth building in a, in a, in a more long, uh, long-term portfolio? So for long-term, uh, I like waiting for market crashes, right? Like who doesn't? But the issue is that when actually the market crashes, everyone wants to buy the dip until it's time to buy the dip, right? Even, even with day trading, it's the same thing where the best trade that you have is the toughest trade. And not only mentally, but like emotionally, it's the toughest trade. It's going to be the trade that hits all the stop losses. It's going to be the trade that might even look the worst, but it's going to be the best. So waiting for market crashes is the ideal potential. But if not, then, you know, EMA trends are really big for me. Uh, 200 EMA is a great, great indicator that I use on the daily and on the weekly chart that helps me uh, invest in long term. Right. So not only for trading. But, uh, you know, investing in real estate for long term as well. But for talking about stocks, uh, the 200 EMA is a great indicator to use on the daily and the weekly for long term dip ads and obviously waiting for market crashes to get those opportunities um, and having your levels set before the market crashes too. right. You don't only want to uh, have levels when the market crashes, because then you're not going to have much conviction. But if you have levels set from before that, hey, when you have a long term mindset that when the market crashes, I'm going to, I'm going to be loading this zone. I'm going to be loading this zone and I'm going to be loading this zone. Right. And then I'm going to have my stop loss as well. So you actually give yourself a lot of room to add because as a day trader, we don't have that. We have that mindset that, okay, I, I need to get out like instantly if you know, it goes against me for, for investing. It's the complete opposite, right? You want to yeah. buy every single dip. So it's, it's a little mind game, but yeah. Um, so right now, I mean, we, we ended the year in 2023, the market was so hot. Basically everything was trading higher. Tech was rallying, uh, been a little bit of a rockier start to 2024. What sectors are you watching right now, Abdul? Um, so no main sectors for me right now, because I do trade penny stocks, right. Or, you know, small cap stocks with low floats. So I'm focusing on right now, penny, like actual, the, the, the theme is actually penny stocks under $1 for the past, uh, about a week, I would say we have uh, runners for going 300, 400% in which, you know, we're having massive moves. We're having pre-market runners with 400% intraday, 200% moves. So my focus right now is actual penny stocks under a dollar. And that's the theme right now. Uh, today was a little bit different. We don't have that theme today. Uh, but for the past few days, we've been having insane uh, pre-market runners 
in which, you know, penny stocks have been the leading uh, stocks. So that was the focus in pre-market. And once the, the when once everyone knows the theme, that's where all the volume goes, right? Once they see one penny stock having all the volume, uh, then the then the next penny stock pump comes, and you know, uh, everyone chases that. So just you know, following the sector, not necessarily the sectors, but the theme of the market. So you mentioned for long term that you like the two hundred day moving average. Uh, what about for like short term? What indicators are you using? Are you using screeners in the morning to find these movers? Uh, what are you really using to to find these trade opportunities? So like I said, in Market Masters within our Discord, we have a built in screener. Okay. Um, and so every time there's a news on a stock, that's you know we have configurations for it. So anytime there's news on a stock and it's a low float and it's running, uh, it'll come in the chat. Right. So we have that area in chat where it's just flooded with, uh, you know, um, new stocks and stuff like that. And then we also have another channel in which is it's called Daily Gainers. And on there, it tells you every single stock that's low float, has volume, how much volume it has and, uh, you know, how much it's gapped up. So you can you can use that scanner to pull it up on the chart and then you'll see and then you can start analyzing from there. Right. So that's what I personally use as well. It'll tell you which stocks have the news. It'll tell you which stocks have SEC filings, analyst upgrades, or anything like that. Uh, and then that's what I use for my scanner. And then I go and, um, you know, analyze those stocks. And then for my indicators for short term, I like, so I used to use, you know, 10 different indicators. Um, and I used to rely on indicators a lot. But, uh, you know, shortly I found out that that's not the way for me. Um, so right now I do use the 10 EMA and up and sometimes the 200 EMA on a day-to-day -day basis as well. I like the 10 EMA for riding trends. Um, and then I like the 200 EMA for major dip buys, right? So um, the, the cleaner your chart is on a day trading perspective, you know, focusing on volume and price action, the further you are going to get. So um, that's uh, 10 EMA, VWAP, um, and 200 EMA. How quickly do you know in the morning when you're watching some of these pre-market movers? How how quickly can you tell like, oh, this thing's, you know, up 30%, it's running, it's going to go up to 80. I mean, you see these pre-market crazy movers with the small caps all the time. Yeah. Um, do you like, how can you tell if it's going to keep running or not? Um, so obviously we can never tell what's going to happen, but the biggest thing that I like to do is volume and price analysis, right? So if we see a big move with big volume on a stock, and then we see a low volume pullback. That's my indication. That's my bread and butter. I like to see a big move on big volume. And then I like to see a pullback on low selling pressure. Once you see that, that means, you know, because the, the move sustained and there's not many sellers up there, now we have room for buyers to actually step in and take it to the next leg. And then I'll go to the daily chart, mark out my next resistance point, and then ride it from the first level that I took the entry all the way to the next level with scaling out on the way up. What about any individual names or stocks that you're in right now? Uh, for investing, I am in Tesla. I am in Microsoft. I'm in AMD. Those are the three stocks that I do have. Um, and, you know, I because right now I'm a day trader, right? So I'm not um, we're on this podcast, so I'm not trading anything right now. But as soon as this ends, you know, back to trading. And uh, right now we do have a few stocks that are uh, on our eyes. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll have to, I might have to hop in that discord and, and find some of these pre-market movers with you. Cause those are, it's always exhilarating when you hop in on one of those, the next thing you know, you're watching it and it's up another 30, 50%. So, all right, guys, oh, we get should... the blood boiling. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Well, mini trades, Abdul, thank you for hopping on our road to wealth webinar with us today. Again, we shared that link to the discord in the chat. We'll drop it in there again. 
Uh, enjoy the rest of your Thursday, and thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. All righty, guys. We are going to keep it ticking here. We are now going to bring on my man, Will McDonough. Uh, and, you know, founder of Corestone, we're going to continue this webinar, talk about, uh, you know, really what to expect for the rest of this year. What's going on with the markets right now? Because, look, at the end of 2023, all you had to do was buy anything and everything was going up. Didn't matter if you were looking at tech uh, or, or any sector, but now things are getting a little rockier. So I'm, I'm excited that we have some guys like Will with his knowledge coming on the stream. So without further ado, let's bring Will on our Road to Wealth webinar. Thanks, AB. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. Um, let's start off with, you know, I mentioned 2024 looking a little rockier than it was in 2023. What was driving us toward the end of the year last year and what's been kind of lacking in that department here? Well, you know, there's always a run into year end usually. Um, and I think there's a little bit of truth serum coming into the markets in January, which is healthy. Any, any year you're in an election cycle, uh, I think you have a different demographic of folks paying attention to macro issues than maybe do in non-election years, right? So people aren't necessarily watching uh, you, CNBC, Bloomberg every day like we do. And then all of a sudden the debate's on and it's smacking them in the face with what are the major macro issues. You know, in this debate cycle, we're seeing more geopolitical and more international issues than we traditionally would, which are warning signs to traditional investors. Uh, and I think that's what's causing people to look under the hood a little bit is we're in this election cycle, we're in this debate cycle, and the news is really pushing out rhetoric that might not necessarily always be positive, right? So uh, you're going to hear the Republicans talk about how bad things are. And they're going to push that into the, mar the market because they want you to question the Democrats and the sitting administration. Well, that's not good for the economy in general because it's casting doubt over the economy in general. And so I think this is going to persist, you know, at least through November. And uh, we should uh, hold on to our bootstraps for it. Um, when, when interest rates were, you know, at 0% or virtually 0%, you know, it didn't really matter for companies how much cash they were holding or really how much debt they were holding for that matter. And now that interest rates are higher, uh, the market is definitely rewarding companies that do have large, uh, cash holdings and, and good balance sheets. Um, but is this a good thing? I mean, is this good for investors? Good for consumers? Um, Depends on where the investors are allocated. Okay. You know, I think this year we're going to see a real dislocation between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and this is not what is healthy for, you know, the general population. Uh, what you're going to see is the companies that are very well capitalized, uh, that have big balance sheets, therefore are going to have better access to capital markets, A, by using their own balance sheet and their own cash, B, by collateralizing their existing operations and their own cash and, and tapping into the debt markets. And so they're going to be active M&A players. They're going to be investing in emerging um, sectors, you know, and doubling down on things like AI and quantum that are sexy at the moment. But on the other side of that, unfortunately, you have companies that aren't well capitalized, that are subject to the debt markets, that, um, you know, aren't sitting on these cash piles. And when they do need to fund their operations, they go out into the markets, they get debt at 10, 10%, whatever it might be. Now, all of a sudden, that's a way higher threshold, you know, as you reference to, uh, to, to drive revenue than when you're getting, you know, free debt. 
And so uh, growth comes from that free debt, no doubt, but it also encourages bad behavior a little bit. And some companies that maybe, uh, you know, shouldn't have gotten that, uh, that, that lifeline got it. And now the banks are going to be scrutinizing that uh, and, and allocating that debt a little bit tighter. And so that's good for the big companies. That's good for the well-capitalized comp legacy players. That's bad for the small companies, right? And so competition goes away, which means pricing goes up, which means the cost of execution goes up for the general population. And therefore, unfortunately, you're going to start to see a, a further separation from the leaders. Um, you know, it's almost like you can picture a, a, an Olympic race around a track, you know, yeah, when dead zero, everybody's running really tight because they all are uh, tapping into, uh, you know, the markets on the same terms. But now all of a sudden they're making that turn. You know, they're coming around uh, around the fourth quarter bend here in, in a four year election cycle. And those that have the cash are moving fast. It's like, you know, the F1 car is pulling away. Yeah, as if as if Apple and, and those guys needed even more of a head start on some of the smaller companies. But now, like you said, I mean, with the higher interest rates and, and investors uh, rewarding companies with good balance sheets, it's it's you know, I mean, they. They're the ones that are already able to withstand that, to withstand the higher interest rates, and they don't need to borrow money. And then now, you know, um, so, I mean, it's it's last year, the the big leaders, the Magnificent Seven, really just crushed it toward the end of the year. Uh, again, off to a little bit of a rockier start, but I think, again, if you were worried about the current environment, you're not really worried about those guys surviving or doing well, really. It's more the the growth stocks. I think about like Kathy Woods, the the companies that she's in and stuff like that, um, that are really going to struggle if the interest rates do indeed stay higher than what's expected or, or longer, higher for longer than what's expected right now. So what you're going to see as a byproduct of that, and that's all accurate and dead on, a byproduct of that becomes that the well-capitalized companies are going to trade up in value. Their stock's going to be more and more valuable. The undercapitalized companies that do need to go into those markets are going to have lower stock prices. And you're going to see M&A activity. And you're going to see you know, some of these big players gobbling up some of the smaller folks in their industries or getting into new sectors because they can pick these guys off at valuations that they probably shouldn't be able to. And so there's going to be transaction volume here, but all that leads to, again, full circle is consolidation. And, um, you know, I don't think that's good for the general markets, uh, but it, it's, it's, um, we, we have to live with it. Yeah. Um, well, we've talked a lot about, I guess, the, the domestic economics and the upcoming election, but I mean, I guess, you know, we definitely should mention there's obviously a lot of geopolitical risks and tensions going on right now. Uh, the market, I mean, you, you had Taiwan Semiconductor report earnings this morning and crushed it and the stock's trading higher, but it's, you know, I, 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 this stock would be way higher if it weren't for, you know, kind of the overhang of geopolitical risks going on over there with China and Taiwan, not to mention, of course, the situation in the Middle East. I mean, from a geopolitical standpoint, Will, what are you watching the most and, and should investors be worried in 2024? Unfortunately, yes. Um, I do think we have to more than ever track these. Uh, you know, we live in a global economy now. We access product globally uh, more so than ever. You know, uh, you were talking earlier about shipping and imports and exports and and the ships, the tangible ships that actually uh, orchestrate that. You know, we we live in that global world. 
And so our products are dependent on supply chain from other parts of the world. And, um, you know, from, let's say, governments that aren't democracies, you know, for lack of a, we can't really uh, say that uh, any nicer. Um, and so if you're dependent on dictatorships for, you know, critical supply chain, well, that's that's a problem, uh, especially in an environment where at any given moment, you know, our relations with that foreign government could go up in smoke. Uh, people point to why have we been so nice with our frenemy Saudi Arabia for years when there's been, you know, quite well documented atrocities. It's because we need their oil. Uh, why did we play nice in the sandbox with Russia as long as we could? Because we needed their oil. We needed their gas. Why are we playing nice with China? It's because we need their, you know, tech. We need their labor. We need their um, their buying power uh, in the global economy. And so what you're going to also see as this election cycle matures um, is, do people think Trump's going to win? Well, that's going to cast a different doubt on different relations than Biden. Right. How is our relations? What, what are the odds of uh, political uprisings in some of these testy markets under a Trump presidency versus a Biden presidency? You have to contemplate that stuff. Um, and I think you're going to see, you know, you see Taiwan Semiconductor. They'll do really well if Trump's in office. They right. might do less well if Biden's in office and China feels like they can push him around as they've you know, shown a willingness to do way more so than they did in the previous uh, administration. And so not taking a political stance here at all, but just pointing out the differences in how different administrations have been uh, viewed. And so it's gonna be further interesting in this election cycle, you know, not to stay on that, but it, we have to pay attention to it this year. Right. Is that, um, you know, our debates, which I hope we have, and I hope Biden is able to show up to them, we need that and and we need that for education uh, of the markets but for the first time in ever as far as i've seen you have the ability to have two formerly sitting presidents debate each other on real track record you know they say applebee's sells more uh sells more dishes on the sizzle uh right and uh, on the sizzling uh yeah before you taste it it looks good then you taste it it ain't as good as it looks Right. And so every president that runs for anything says, I'm going to do all these things. And OK, four years later, we actually have your track record to point to. And so in this election cycle, we probably are going to have two candidates that have track record. And we're going to be able to really assess which of these track records are going to play well in, in, in the current environment that we're in. It's going to be fascinating to watch. But I also think it's going to have direct effect on certain sectors of the economy and certain you know geographies. And I mean, do you think we'll see the market kind of being able to tell us what it thinks about the election as the election cycle goes on? And if you see, you know, the polls and the and the odds start shifting more heavily in Biden or Trump's favor one way or the other, and the market might go up or down because of that? Well, you know, you, yes. Uh, overnight after Trump won Iowa, there was a whole slew of China stocks that traded off massively. Um, and it was interesting to see literally that night. Um, and so, you know, there are betting markets more so than there were in the last election or, right. or, or eight years ago. Uh, but no more public are the betting markets than, you know, the, the global macro environment. And so 
uh, I think more and more as we all have access to more data than ever before, um, you know, and news much more readily available through X and wherever it might be, we're getting our news real time now. Uh, and we're getting news from whatever sources we seek, as opposed to what those, you know, the, the few main media companies want us to see. And so people are assessing that data on another level than has ever been done before, which is why you see such volume and such volatility and why you see the markets react as fast as they do. Uh, there's a lot less of a lag, you know, in the public equities markets uh, to reacting to uh, geopolitical news and political news uh, than there's ever been. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you might be someone out there in the audience that's, I don't want to, you know, talk about politics or follow politics, this or that. But I mean, to Will's point, if you're an active participant in the market, you kind of need to pay attention what's going on there. Um, because again, the market will give you clues as to how it's feeling about certain things as we, as the, as the election cycle plays out and we get some more clarity. Uh, and of course, you know, I mean, I think it is probably worth looking at those betting markets and stuff so you can see where things are trending, where the polls are trending and whatnot. Um, Will, let's, let's transition real quick to, uh, I know holiday spending, retail shopping came in the December numbers were great, came in higher than expected. Uh, for all intents and purposes, I mean, it looks like the, the economy is holding up strong. Do you expect these trends to continue? Is there a flip side to that and saying, yeah, okay, sales were great and the economy is strong, but that also means inflation is going to hang out uh, and be higher for longer. I believe that it will be higher for longer. Uh, I was surprised by those numbers. I've been surprised by the numbers every quarter for the last eight quarters, though. <laughs> so uh, at some point, you know, you can't fight uh, that any longer. Uh, it's It's been amazing how resilient the markets have been um, and the consumer has been. I do think, you know, the debt, uh, you, you showed a, a chart earlier uh, with Charles, uh, that show the outstanding debt, which I think is important to track. And, you know, we all have to look in our own personal life. Do we have more debt than we had a year ago, four years ago? Um, the markets would say yes. Uh, and the other thing that, you know, is gamifying some of those numbers uh, from the consumer spending is the rise of platforms like Indeed and and uh, these 0% immediate financing. You know, you can't check out for anything online anymore without being offered, you know, a uh, pay this over 18 months. And, you know, those are all, those all empower these big consumer brands to book revenue immediately and, and to get the consumer to spend money that they might not have down the road. But then those consumer brands don't care whether or not they have the money down the road because they're going to get paid. Um, and so, you know, we're just finding new ways to push debt into the market and, and pushing debt into the market rises consumer spending and rising consumer spending you know, rises, uh, you know, revenues and, and, and stock prices. And so uh, that trickle down is certainly occurring. Uh, but, you know, we do have to continue to look under the hood and, and say, what are those? What is driving those numbers? Is it stimulus money? Is it debt, uh, e easily accessible consumer debt? And is that long term healthy for the market? Or is that kind of putting lipstick on a pig? Uh, I continue to think uh, it is lipstick on a pig. But like I say, I've been proven wrong for a long time. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, the, the buy now, pay later stuff, a firm and all that, it kind of scares me in the sense that it's like, all right, how many of these people that you think that are doing this 
already have credit cards and already have credit card debt. And then now they're doing these like loans and stuff. And it's like you said, it's kind of just feels like it's pushing it down the road and saying, well, that's a problem for a later date. And I feel like we've been down that road before. And it a lot of times doesn't end pretty, but like Charles, I mean, showed us with the chart. It's like not that crazy high debt compared to the uh, household GDP. So uh, who, I mean, if, if it does hit a boiling point, like a lot of people think it will, it could get ugly, but I think for right now, uh, you know, it's not necessarily maybe, uh, 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 you know, like the sky is falling chicken little, let's sell everything overall. I mean, speaking of that, do you think you would be, you know, like a seller or a buyer of the overall market right now? Do you think we end the year 2024 with the S and P 500 higher or lower than what we're at right now? I do think there's going to continue to be this haves and have nots thing play out, you know, magnificent seven, um, buying the S and P 500, um, you know, the markets are now educated to see that the seven dragged the 493. Uh, and so why should I buy the broader 500 if I can just buy the seven winners? Right. So unfortunately you're going to see, uh, again, not great for markets, but you're going to see people pouring into the winners and pulling out of the losers. And that is just going to create this broader dislocation between the haves and the have nots, um, you know, which I'm not happy about, but is it, it is the world we live in. And so, um, Will the S&P be higher in 12 months? I think that will be tied to how the election cycle matures, tied to uh, global macro and geopolitical events, and um, how and tied to how much the haves pull away from the have-nots and drive enough gain that it does lift up the rest of you know the, the less healthy companies with it. I'd way rather you know double down on my winners and yeah. uh, take less risk moving into this environment. Yeah, I mean, to your point, it's like we already have so much consolidation in those top names. You look at the the market caps of those companies compared to the other, you know, 493 stocks in the S&P 500, and that's just astonishing numbers. I don't know how much more consolidation we can really get there before it becomes, you know, pretty unhealthy. Um, and uh, I know... Uh, you know, streaming's been in the news recently, of course, over the weekend. You had NFL playoff games that you had to buy, you know, Peacock for and all this stuff. Uh, what do you see in there in the, in the streaming world? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, to the same comment and broader arc, there's got to be consolidation there. You know, you're starting to see uh, just in your home, you know, I, I when my kids all go to bed at night and I get a quiet moment, I flip on. TV. I rarely go to cable anymore unless it's to watch a Celtics game. Um, I'm, I'm between Netflix and Prime and Disney and all these different platforms. And you can see it right in front of your face who has the, uh, you know, uh, evolving content, who is able to secure content that's of interest. And uh, it's just going to broader separate. And so I think that'll lead, lead to some consolidation. You know, I think people are better educated now about the cost of bundling versus the cost of signing up for all these different, you know, crazy television services. Um, I have uh, personally, you know, matured into that myself and, and tap into way more subscription stuff uh, than, than I uh, am finding a need for cable providers. And so I do think that there's going to be consolidation there as well. And I think that uh, on the inverse of our previous conversation is good for the consumer because we yeah. don't need, 10 different logins, no. you know, let's just boil it down to what we need and happy to pay for it. Yeah. And I know Netflix is talking about bringing live sports to its platform. So maybe one day you'll be even able to watch those Celtics games on Netflix. Uh, yeah. They got a big win against the Spurs last night. 
against Wembenyama and, and the Spurs. But um, yeah, well, this has been a, a great conversation. I mean, touched on a lot of different things going into 2024. Any other hot takes or things you want to leave us with uh, before I let you get on with the rest of your Thursday? No, I think investors should be, you know, really careful about uh, about what we're talking about. And I think a barbell will further persist, you know, take some assets and put them in treasuries, take some assets and put them in very, very secure yield producing um, corners of the market. You know, it's been a long time since we've been able to get 5% basically risk free. Take that. Be happy with that. Don't be greedy with that. And then on the other side of the barbell, you know, I think lean in to the winners and the winners are going to have a good year and the winners are going to prosper and the winners are going to consolidate and, um, you know, pay attention to the election, even though it's probably some of it's going to be really hard to watch. Um, yeah. Try to listen to the message that each uh, participant is spewing more so than, um, you know, the tone at which they spew. Yeah, and how the market is responding to it for sure as well. So, Will McDonough, again, the chairman and founder of Corestone Capital. Thank you for joining us on the Road to Wealth webinar. Uh, look forward. Hopefully, we get to chat again soon. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks, AB. Great job. Appreciate it. All right, guys, that was Will McDonough, again, chairman and founder of Corestone Capital. Thank you to all of our participants in today's Road to Wealth webinar. We got to touch on a lot of different things from federal interest rates to inflation, to labor data. Um, so, you know, again, thank you to everyone who tuned in. Please smash the like and subscribe if you have not already. Um, but yeah, guys, we'll be back again. More great content coming your way this afternoon. We're going to have Cannabis Insider at 1 p.m. And then tomorrow. Oh, no, we're not going to have Cannabis Insider at 1 p.m. Uh, but we will be back tomorrow, of course, with pre-market prep at 8 a.m. We're going to be talking about banks and bank earnings coming your way with Comerica, Regions, Ally Bank, and more. Uh, so yeah, make sure to stay tuned. You know where to find us. Boom. We'll see you next time.